What do you use to fry chicken? Yellow spread or white shortening? Why not get the best of both with wonderful golden fluffo? Hello, and welcome to another crispy, delicious episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago-based food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Where Chicago, Thrillist, and more. Everybody says you should be eating fish to get your omega-3s and 6s. We'll talk about that with Ethan Foreman of England's H. Foreman and Son, smokers of some of the most gorgeous smoked salmon in the world. Then we'll move on to lard. That's what Paul Farabach of Chicago's Big Jones fries his chicken in. And we'll talk about his upcoming book on southern food and why it's what you should be eating. And not many people tell more Chicagoans what they should be eating than Michael Nagrant, restaurant reviewer for Chicago's Red Eye and contributor over the years to practically everything. We'll meet up to talk about what on the food scene tastes good and what deserves boiling in oil. That's all in episode 13 of Airwaves Full of Bacon. It's digestible. You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman. The sausage king of Chicago. Yeah. I was so excited. I'd been after Abe Froman, one of the hardest gets in Chicago food podcasting, for months. I heard that Chewing the Fat had him tied up exclusive for their upcoming Dangers of Nitrites show. But now he'd emailed me to be on my show. I looked a little closer at the email, though, and I realized it wasn't Abe Froman. It was H. Foreman and Son. And they aren't the sausage kings of Chicago. They make smoked salmon for the Queen of England. Oh well, whatever. H. Foreman and Son have been makers of fine smoked fish products in London since 1905, and suppliers of the same to Chicago-area restaurants and shops, including Italy, Whole Foods, and others. Ethan Foreman, their North American representative, came by my house to show off some of the best smoked fish in the world. And I figured I couldn't eat all that fish by myself, so I invited my friend and fellow food writer David Hammond to join us. Foreman started out by telling us about how they smoke the fish in London. So we rope hang the salmon. Rope goes through the collar of the, collar of the salmon, and we hang it and we put these, these rope-hung salmon on these racks, and then we, and we put, roll the racks into a kiln and close the door. And what happens in the kiln is that the smoke from the friction process fills the kiln. What we do is we have a wheel, an industrial wheel that we, it rotates on the outside of the kiln, and it looks like a gear. Okay, it looks like a gear. So we push oak wood logs, long oak wood logs, down against the wheel, and the grinding between the high-speed high wheel and the wood creates a, 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 a friction smoke. Like if you were burning your tires in the road. Or brakes. Right. Smoking brakes. Yes, absolutely. If you're burning tires in the road and you see smoke coming out, that's friction smoke. That's not from fire. So where are you based? Um, well, the factory's in London. Yeah. Our, our central distribution for all of the U.S. is, is Northbrook. Where's your English accent? I came here when I was three, actually. Okay. My, my, my parents are not involved in the business. Okay. Uh, my uncle and my, my cousins actually are involved. No, they're more, my cousin Lance uh, 
Lance Foreman is the head of H. Foreman and Son, and before him was his father, uh, my uncle. So, um, fourth generation of the Foremans, Harry Foreman was the beginning, but not all of the family members, of, as you can understand, are involved. Before I start slicing the smoked salmon, the main, main event, uh, I'm putting out the other, some of the other smaller products that we do. Um, we do about a dozen different types of gravid locks. Gravid locks, again, meaning marinated salmon. Um, and we marinated salmon in, uh, you know, ma salmon can be marinated in anything. Some people use alcohol, some people use spices, some people use, um, you know, the most, the most common marinated for gravid locks is the dill. That's what most people know. Gravid locks was, um, I, to my knowledge, gravid locks, I think, was invented in Scandinavia. They used dill. Um, dill is the most common gravid locks flavor. Um, in the world. There's a D in your... Gravlax or Gravlax. There's many different... Uh, look, lots of different languages say it different ways. Because in Europe, Gravlax is actually one of the most um, prevalent dishes on most menus. Smoked salmon is not as as, as uh, popular in Western Europe and Eastern Europe as Gravlax is. Gravlax, or when you, whenever you see it. Whereas smoked salmon is more of a British... Um, really more of a British uh, food. Uh, what I'm slicing here actually is a wasabi ginger gravidlax. This is a Thai gravidlax, which is lemongrass and ginger. This what I'm actually uh, opening up right here is a gin and tonic, um, gin and tonic gravidlax. There is no gin in this. We just call it gin and tonic because we use juniper berry. Ah. So um, what we're gonna do, what we should do, is actually have you guys come and taste some of the gravidlax while I prepare the smoked salmon. This is the dill, right? That is the dill. That is my favorite. I like the dill. Out of all the gravidlaxes, I like the dill. Classic. I put the slice of fish in my mouth. The Gravidlox is velvety, almost feathery light, ever so slightly perfumed by the spices, one of the most delicate things I've ever eaten. The Asian spices are interesting, but I have to say, the Scandinavian choice of just dill is a classic for a reason. And you can actually see, you can see how thin, how fine that product is. Mm -hmm. Now, in the, in the Gravidlox, Traditionally, you do put sugar in Gravilox, and we also put a little bit of sugar in Gravilox. When I mentioned to you that we don't use sugar and no nitrates, that's the smoked smoke. salmon. Gravilox needs sugar. It is a raw, as raw as raw can get. Is all smoked salmon cured? I mean, is that a common practice? Yes, you because you need to take out as much water as possible. From, either whether it's, wi it's wild, then you're taking out the sea salt, uh, the seawater. Sorry, the seawater. Um, and the, you're basically taking, you're reducing the meat. As much as possible, so that you can—it's—it's not—it's hanging in the kiln or it's laying in the oven, however somebody wants to smoke it, with as little water in the in the salmon as possible. Now, some of the some of our competitors, many of our competitors, actually inject brine into the salmon as part of the cure. Um, as part of their, their cure, as part of their cure, and brine actually adds water to the salmon weight. So what they're doing is actually selling to clients salmon with thirty or forty percent water to beef up the weight. There's no reason for brine. We've never used brine. And another thing is we hand slice everything we do. Yeah. We have uh, many slicers on the factory floor who hand slice all of our products, uh, whether it be D-cut or long slice or however, they want to, however the client wants it sliced. We hand slice. The reason is because um, when it's, when there's several reasons, actually. We want to have the perfect, absolute perfect end product that the customer can have whatsoever. We want the least amount, if possible, to have no brown spots. I mean, that's not possible, but the least amount of brown spots. We make sure there's never a pin bone in our product. We, we hand pick all of the pin bones. Machines wouldn't be able to do every single one. Machines sometimes skip, sometimes miss. I mean, not every, every single salmon is different like every snowflake. 
So you have, the, the human eye has to take out all the pin bones properly. Um, also, one of the main reasons why we hand slice is because we don't include any pellicle on our salmon. Do you guys know what pellicle is? Pellicle is the ash crust that actually falls upon the salmon. Pellicle is, the, is what originally was the preserving case of the filet of salmon. So when you, when you smoke a salmon, whether it's in an oven or in a kiln or whatever it is, uh, you have wood molecules. That are, that's the smoke is wood molecules. Okay? And when the wood molecules fall upon the filet of salmon, whether it's on the outside of the filet or, or on the dorsal side where the patty cuts are, it creates a crust. But I think a lot of Americans would think that's the good part. Yeah, well, they would. They, <laughs> that unfortunately, smoked salmon in the United States has been degraded to uh, a very a much different product than was originally intended. It was always intended to be a beautiful sight, a luxury, amazing, exquisite food. And when you thick cut, well, it doesn't look very luxurious. So when you thin cut, and I'll show you how, how we do either D cut or a long cut. Most of our clients take long cut. When you, th- when you uh, long cut, you can do a lot of things with it. And you want to have it looking beautiful. You know, you always see smoked salmon on high-end menus or steakhouses or anything. Uh, smoked salmon is one of those celebrated luxury foods. And yet you got a bagel out. I did. Which yeah. proves... I'm going to, well, available. I'm going to show you what it's like to eat <laughs> without the bagel and with the bagel. Okay. But that makes it middle class. Yes, this is the long slice. I'll have you guys try this also. Because the difference between long slicing and deep cutting is that you're going to have a different taste from the top of the, of the filet to the bottom of the filet. The top of the filet is going to have a little bit more of a salty flavor. The bottom of the filet is a lot more fat. Where the Gravenlox was light, almost airy, this is lush, fat rolling around the tongue. Eaten by itself, it's a sensual experience. Putting it on a bagel with cream cheese mutes it, like a winter coat over bare skin. That was nice, but I think the problem with eating it like that is your tongue's hitting the bagel first. Yes. But uh, Right. The bagels take over. Look, we have a very fine product, and I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It was nice to have it that way just because a little carb sure. gets into the mix. But. Sure. But I, it's also, I want to let you know how you're going to commonly see this uh, smoked salmon. Now, these bagels, I want to let you know, these bagels are from Upper Crust in Deerfield. I personally... Um, I love Upper Crust. I think their bagels are phenomenal. Upper Crust was, was our first client in Chicago before anybody. Upper Crust bagels were our first client in Chicago. And I'm not trying to plug them for any specific reason. I'm just letting you know that they in Deerfield were, they took the chance. Nobody knew who we were, who, what, what we were doing. You know, no, no sugar in your locks. What are you talking about? That's, that's unheard of. Well, guess what? That's, <laughs> we're the original ones who made it. So, you know, what do you, but Upper Crust actually took a chance on us and that it's, it's done very well there. Um, there are many other clients who actually are, are um, celebrating the fact that we are a healthier option to the locks that they've got now. Um, we have one of the more uh, prevalent delis in the north, in the north suburbs, um, Once Upon a Bagel. They have four locations. Uh, they've been using us for... for Kaufman's, too. Yes, Kaufman's. Yes, absolutely. Kaufman's. Um, Max's in Highland Park. Um, and we're growing. People are coming to us now rather than us going to them. People are finding that, oh, they've got a healthy locks. Let's... That's because people are very interested in no nitrites. People are very interested in no sugar. And really? I don't know, no yeah, sugar, too? There's no reason for it. There's no reason to have more sugar if you, can't, if you, if you don't need it. Right, in the smoke. You don't, yeah, you don't. we don't need it. But so, much, so many companies put sugar in it. Why do they put sugar in it? Well, there's a reason. Well, they're, they're using fire for smoking or burning for smoking. And when you take a filet out of a kiln that has been using fire smoke or burning smoke, well, it's actually very bitter. If you taste it without the sugar, it's actually a very bitter product. And 
people use sugar to sweeten it up a little bit. How do you feel about people using like cream cheese on their bagel? That's an American thing. I love cream cheese on my bagel. Absolutely. With with salmon? Absolutely. Yeah. I very much enjoy cream cheese. My father would, uh, you know, he he, uh, he thinks I'm a blasphemer <laughs> because cream cheese is not a very European thing. Okay. My dad's British. Um, you know, we came here from England, not knowing, never seen cream cheese in our lives. Uh, they use either creme fraiche or actually butter or margarine. Um, so that's not something that they use, but I think that's, I love it. I absolutely love it myself. Now I'm going to actually cut, start, uh, cut into the sashimi cuts for you guys. Cause this is, uh, what we call in New York, they call it a bleak cut or a czar cut. Either Belit cut or Zarka, we call it a royal fillet or royal fillet, as my cousins call it. Um, yeah, everybody, yeah, everybody, uh, everybody calls it a different thing. What it really is is the loin of the salmon fillet. Okay, so just very much like the fillet mignon, this is the same thing. This is the fillet mignon of the smoked salmon, and as the royal fillet. The sashimi cut is somehow buttery and yet muscular at the same time. The lushness of fish and the hearty satisfaction of steak in the same bite. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. It really is. And people go so crazy. Delicate. It's so yeah. delicate. And people go crazy for it. And it is very pricey. And people who want the finest do not buy on price. They just buy what they can get the finest. Yeah, that's some of the that, That's fantastic. And all your salmon for all your products comes from the same source. Yep, Scotland. Not from the same farm. We, you know, we pick, pick and choose from different farms depending on the price. Um, but it comes from the same, it's all from Scotland. We do not use any other, anything other than Scottish salmon. And it is all farmed. Yep. Well, no, I'm sorry. Um, the majority of our products are farmed. But we are, we, we are the only ones in the world who smoke wild Scottish salmon. Nobody else smokes wild Scottish salmon because it is so very expensive. Uh, I mean, it is more than twice the price. It is literally more than twice the price. Whereas in um, many of the retail locations in, in Chicagoland who carry our product, a four-ounce pack of smoked salmon or gravid locks is anywhere between 11 and $12. Um, the wild would probably roughly be around 25 bucks. What? How do you... Uh, now, I've had good salmon from Salmon Farms, but it is kind of controversial. Uh, to use farm salmon, I mean there is yeah, there's different types of well, there's different types of farming. There's different types of farming. Um, there's in Chile and and uh, places like Costa Rica and China, they actually use tanks, literally tanks, like you would see it above ground swimming pool, literally tanks um, to farm their salmon. They dump the salmon in there, they feed them pellets, whatever they want to do. There's no room for it's overcrowded. In Scotland, they actually use canals for farming, so they do have enclosures, but the canals actually bring in lots of fresh water flow cold freshwater flow so it's the same water that a wild would be swimming in um but they're they're feeding them they're, feed, they're they don't have to go the, the salmon in the in the canal farms in scotland don't have to go out and find their prey uh they're being fed so they're hanging out and they're lazy boys you know eating all day long getting fat and farm salmon are literally twice the size as a wild salmon uh, farm salmon is very clean their meat is very clean the skin is very clean why because they're not being attacked they're not being constantly pelted by, from predators flavor is great but what really knocking me out is the texture absolutely of your stuff it's absolutely. so it's got supple. it's not supple would be a good word it's not fall apart by any means you're tasting the you're tasting the void 
of excess ingredients. You are tasting the all natural. <laughs> you are tasting people. People use the words all natural and organic and all sorts of things for marketing purposes. We are everything's organic. My hand is organic. Okay, <laughs> if it's made with garlic, look, it's everything in the world is organic. This is truly all natural. We do not use preservatives. We don't use coloring. We don't use a bacteria called Nissen. We don't use any ingredients that weren't originally intended. We have three ingredients. We have the salmon. We have the salt. And if you consider the smoke an ingredient, then that's an ingredient too. H. Foreman and Sons smoked salmon and other products are available at lots of places, too many to name here. But you can find links for some of the places we talked about, as well as pictures of the fish we ate, in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. Speaking of fish and sustainability, a few years ago I did two Skyful of Bacon videos on that subject, one called A Better Fish and one called In the Land of the Whitefish, shot on a whitefish boat in Lake Michigan. I've also been on WGN Radio again recently, talking about one of my pieces for Thrillist, and I was on another podcast, Outside the Loop, with Mike Steven. If you really want to hear more of me, the links for all of that are at skyfullofbacon.com. No restaurant in Chicago takes Southern food more seriously than Andersonville's Big Jones. Chef Paul Farabach studies 19th century cookbooks and roams the South looking for forgotten food traditions. Next year, he'll collect his research and recipes in the Big Jones Cookbook from the University of Chicago Press. I sat down with him to talk Southern food and its influence on Midwestern food, and to learn more about his book. Well, it's a restaurant cookbook, um, so it's about what we do here at Big Jones. And it sort of started as a little DIY project in which I was going to compile maybe three dozen of our most requested recipes. Because people ask us all the time for particularly cornbread, um, but I get colleagues ask me about blood sausage, for instance, um, or how we make our andouille, or the process for our tasso. Um, you know, we get requests for recipes to make red beans and rice, chicken and dumplings. I have another cookbook project uh, on the table called Kitchen Gardens and Bourbon Barrels, and that's about sort of the ancestry of American country cooking um, and as it relates to Appalachia and the Buffalo Trace and sort of how um, all of these different cuisines sort of came together in, in the heartland and, and created what we, what we know today is, I guess, what a lot of people call comfort food, but what I like to call country cooking. Um, and I was going to put, just put together this little staple-bound book for, of our recipes to put in people's hands while I worked on this other bigger project. And when I, when I, once I'd compiled about you know, 30 to 40 recipes, I realized that I didn't want to put that book out there, a book, booklet out there, because it wasn't representative of, at all of, of how we cook. And to me, if I'm going to document something, I want to document it thoroughly. And so I started, you know, I wanted to represent whole animal cookery. I wanted to represent um, all of the baking we do and how it relates to all of the, all of the finished dishes on our menu come in the back as, as raw produce in, in one form or another. So I wanted to have recipes for jams, pickles, jellies, preserves, 
um, finished dishes. But you know, the, the pantry was kind of where the big the big sticking point came because you know over the course of a year we'll we'll do you know 15 or 20 different types of fruit preserves and two dozen kinds of pickles and then all of the charcuterie we do. And I wanted this stuff to be represented, and I eventually came up with you know 75 or 80 recipes. Um, and realized that I had a big, I had a big project on my hands. Um, that grew eventually to over a hundred, and I think it's about 115 now. So, what are what are some of the other things that that you put in there that people people have been asking you for? Uh, beignets, we get asked we get asked for a lot. Um, fried chicken, we get asked for a lot. Um, that whole, there, you know, there's a whole process to it, and I always thought it was really funny that people thought our fried chicken was remarkable at all. I mean, I think it's good, but in, in, in many ways, I think that the reason people think our fried chicken is so good is because other places are kind of lazy about how they do it. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not, you don't just cut up a chicken and dredge it and fry it up in a pan. I mean, you can do that if you have a really good chicken and you have good fresh lard, you can, and you, can, and you season it right, you can certainly fry up a chicken that way and have it turn out well. Um, but right there, you said lard, and people don't fry in lard. They fry in, you know, big industrial corn oil boxes <laughs> that come off a truck. Right. Um, you know, the, the big thing about that is I, I don't think that it's as I don't think it's as satisfying, and it's also not it's not it's not real food. I, I guess if if you wanna if you wanna get um, the corn oil. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of the things that sort of set. The way I like to cook away from, I think, the way a lot of restaurants like to cook nowadays um, is that I like to cook with whole real foods. And, you know, the more, the more processed an ingredient is, you know, not only is it the, the, less, the less healthy is it, it is, but it's also like it's not as, it's not as satisfying. Um, you can put, I mean, if you take something like French fries, for instance, and I mean, right now we have all of this ham fat and bacon fat left over from our, left over from our brunch, some of which we used in, the, in, our, in our fried chicken pot. Um, but we also use it to fry our to, to fry our, our, our fries in, and you know we did for a long time. We used we used corn oil for frying here, and you could eat something like like French fries, you know, potatoes which have a lot of calories in them, and you could just eat them and eat them and eat them, and it it, it doesn't really it never really be satisfied or full. Um, but since we started um, last year, frying in this combination of, of ham fat. It's, I mean, the base is lard, but then we season it with ham fat and bacon fat and a little clarified butter. You get this very broad range of, of fatty acids. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're eating pork fat, basically, which is extremely nutritious, no matter what, you know, a dietitian will tell you. It has a lot of calories in it, but so does corn oil. Yeah. Um, but you're getting, you're getting a, a, a broad range of fatty acids, and, you know, I can eat a few of them, and I feel really satisfied. And it sort of reminded me of the way of, of, of you know, my, my mom's cooking when we grew up, and we never ate big portions of anything. I mean, we ate food that you would can certainly consider rich, but we never ate big portions of it. And, you know, I guess if you eat that kind of food, it just sort of sticks to your ribs and, and, and you feel good. So, um, I mean, I think that that's a big difference. And, you know, it, you could say maybe it's a little bit more expensive to do it this way, um, but, you know, I don't think... You know, if you're in the business of feeding people, why would you, you know, try to save a few pennies by using an industrial product rather than using something that's a, that's a genuine food?
in, in Indiana, sort of on the edge of the South. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Kansas and kind of feel the same way. I mean, my my family's heritage was more like German food and things like that that mm-hmm. they brought with them. But you certainly saw, you know, there was there was a kind of Southernish out of Oklahoma feel to food. If you went to a diner, you ran into that sort of thing. Right. Um, so what is Midwestern food then? If you know, to me, it's those two things butting against each other, but I'm not sure what the middle ground is. It is, it is the two cuisines butting against each other. I mean, I think that the primary line, um, you know, there, there are two lines that I would describe when you're getting from Southern cuisine into Midwestern cuisine. Um, but, you know, there are German, German communities in the South, um, the German coast in Louisiana, out, out around Lactalaman, which is called Lactalaman because that's Alaman, where the Germans Germany, live. Germany, yeah. Um, and Dutch Fork, South Carolina, certainly throughout Appalachia, um, the Dutch oven, um, the Appalachian Dutch, that was, those were German. Um, you know, so those, inf- those influences came in. There were obviously the Ulsters, the Scotch-Irish uh, Protestants. And, um, you know, the British influence becomes less and less important the farther you get away from the East Coast. Um, obviously, the French influence just sort of waned a long time ago, um, although certainly in restaurant kitchens, that technique is, is still highly important. But, you know, there's, there's what you might call the okra line, <laughs> which ends somewhere around northern Tennessee, southern Kentucky, um, and somewhere around, you know, between Virginia and North Carolina, uh, where, you know, okra being a particularly African and a particularly southern ingredient just doesn't thrive. Um, I mean, we 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 get it at the market here in the summertime, but we don't have a long season here. Okra okra has a very long season, so you know it's in those it's in those very warm climates with long growing seasons where you find it a lot because <clears throat> they're harvesting okra in Louisiana already, and they'll be harvesting okra into November. Um, whereas up here, you know, we'll get it for you know a month if we're lucky between mid August and, and mid September. Um, you know, so it's just not it's just not an important food up here, um, and that also means things like things like tomatoes and, and watermelon have a very short season up here, also. Um, you know, and you know, green tomatoes sort of play into that same line as well, because in the south you're eating a lot of green tomatoes because tomatoes are so productive in that climate that you have to constantly pick tomatoes. You know, so there's that line, and then you go a little bit further north into Kentucky. Yeah, there's the grits line, and I grew up north of the grits line. Um, you know, you go to Louisville, you don't see grits much. You, you go to Cincinnati, you don't see grits much. You go a little bit further south to, say, Lexington, and they start to pop up, and you go down into Tennessee, and there's grits everywhere. I'm um, in the same, you find grits in, in Oklahoma, certainly. Um, maybe, maybe or maybe not much in Kansas, Kansas City. Um, Pretty rare when I was growing up. Right. Um, you know, so those are the, sort, of the, sort of the two big lines. Um, and uh, but otherwise, I mean, I think that a lot of what I grew up with certainly was was very southern. I, we did fried chicken for that was a big a special occasion dish. It was a big celebratory thing. Um, if we were, it was a long time between weddings or you know an 80th jubilee party or any of these things where you would actually have fried chicken. You know, if it had been a while, we might have it for Sunday dinner. Um, but you know, we had fried chicken. We had. You know, I, my grandma had a pantry full of, you know, they called the chow chow and all, all sorts of relishes and pickles and preserves. And um, obviously throughout the Midwest, just like in the South, you had a, a hog-based small farm culture. 
and uh, so most most farms had a smokehouse on them, and uh, and people ate ham and, and and bacon and salt pork and whatever else you could do with a pig. Um, you had your types of blood sausage and your liver mush, I guess, in the Carolinas. Um, over here, over here in the Midwest, you know, the Swedish immigrants in in um, in Iowa and Nebraska and Wisconsin, you find, you know, they make liver sausage with potatoes as as, as the filler. And Louisiana became rice. There, it used to be cornmeal until sometime in the early 20th century when the rice industry really started to take hold there. So, it's you know, geography sort of defines it, but also the shorter the shorter growing season, and also in the Midwest you have of much, much, much less African influence. And the farther south you go, the, the African influence, particularly in low country um, and Gulf Coast cuisine, the African influence is, is huge. Um, whereas here, there wasn't really much of an African American population until the Great Migration. And then it was sort of concentrated in the cities. Yeah. Um, and that spawned soul food, um, which is another thing. I mean, I guess you could call it Midwestern cuisine at this point because it takes place in the Midwest. But it's not, it's not really related. All right, so what are some other, what's some other things in the book that people have been hot to find out about? We get asked about popovers a lot. And those are like the, those are like the easiest thing. Yeah. Like everybody should make popovers. Um, they're easy, they're delicious, they're actually really filling. Um, and, uh, you know, so we get asked about those a lot. We get asked about Sally Lun a lot. Um, we've, we get asked, we, we do salt rising bread for special dinners every now and then. Yeah, yeah, I've had that. We don't, we don't do it regularly because it's about a 36 hour process to make. Um, but when we do do it, everybody wants to know how you make it. And well, that's in the book and it's a kind of a long and convoluted process. But you know, if you, if you go through the, if you follow the steps, which are actually pretty simple, and you stay with it for 36 hours, you get this bread that's unlike anything else that, uh, that, that you can find anywhere. And it's sort of a unique animal to, you know, the mid-Appalachian chain, Eastern Kentucky, Western, uh, Western Virginia. I remember us talking about, a long time ago, about like hunting down boudin and stuff like that and, and your recipes, you know, how you... Yeah, I talk about that. I talk about that a bit in the book. And, you know, I don't think I've ever been asked for my boudin recipe. I've been asked, I've been asked about our, our blood sausage process and recipe, you know, the boudin rouge. And that was kind of a, I, and I talk about that in the book, it was a little bit of a process because Boudin Rouge recipes don't really exist. It's, it's kind of a funny thing. And, and, you know, so I had to kind of had to go back to the, the French recipes, which are, are generally bound with bread, and sort of re reverse engineer that with rice. Most butcher shops in Acadiana don't even make blood sausage anymore. I mean, people who come here and get our Boudin Rouge are eating something that you'd be hard-pressed to find even in Louisiana. Um, and so, I mean, I think there are you know, probably a couple of places down there that still do it, but for the most part they don't. I mean, a lot of those places don't even put liver in their, in their Boudin anymore because um, they think that the, the, young, the young kids don't, don't like the, the flavor of organ meats. Which, I, the thing I always loved about Boudin was that it sort of, it stretched that liver flavor. Like, I've never liked pork liver or beef liver straight. Um, it's just too, it's just too much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you use a one, three to four pound pork liver in a 20 pound batch of sausage and you get that flavor, which I love. I love the flavor. 
but it's sort of balanced with a bunch of other things and it becomes and it becomes kind of addictive yeah when i was going from you know 70 or 70 recipes and higher i put out on facebook i was like you know i guess i should find out what what people really want what our fans really want in this book and i put it out on facebook you know what recipes would you guys like to see in the in the book and um a lot of people came back and said oh we really want red velvet cake (laughs) okay you know, so red velvet cake's in there. And, it, you know, it's certainly a unique way we do it. So I think it's a good, uh, I think it was a good thing to put in there. I mean, we do it, it's on the menu for, you know, three or four weeks a year now. I mean, we did it last month. It's like that point in March and April where we would just have, you know, winter, you know, yeah. citrus fatigue and banana fatigue and are, are sort of in between winter and spring and just waiting for rhubarb to show up. We put, you know, red velvet cake on the menu for a few weeks and that's it. Um, people ask for the sea, the sea Island Benny cake. I don't, I don't know if you ever had that. It was actually, we use this Benny cake flour for it. And it's basically a sponge cake, but Benny cake flour is an old slave kitchen thing. And, you know, they had, this, they had their, their Benny seeds that they brought with them from Africa, which are higher in protein and lower in oil than sesame and um, they would you could you could do it either by pressing or by simmering it in water and slaves usually did, did it by simmering in water um, to bring the oil out of the seeds and then the oil would rise to the top and you skim it off and then you redry the seeds and, and grind it and then you have the a high protein flour interesting um, yeah and it's it's got you know on the benny they taste like sesame but they're really intense like like kind of almost bitter and um but I always liked these little, I, I used to go to Parr's Grocery down here all the time when I lived in Andersonville, and you know, they have these little honey and sesame candies yeah. that are just so addictive, <clears throat> and I eat those all the time. And so I love the flavor of honey and sesame together, and so I made a sponge cake with this Benny cake flour and, and honey, and it's, and it's really awesome, and we would use an old school... Uh, Rue icing, which some people call called um, boiled icing. Um, although we don't we don't make it the way a typical boiled icing is. We actually make a roux, so we can to- so we toast the flour before adding the milk and boiling it. Whereas a lot of when you have typically when you have boiled icing, some people call it German buttercream. Also, basically you take a certain amount of flour and you put it in with milk, and then you boil it, and then you use that. To, it basically was a way to stretch butter. I think. Oh, okay. during during the depression when it was really popular but because of the roux it is also just like silk it has the most unbelievably smooth mouthfeel and it's awesome i mean if you're going to make one dessert recipe in the book that would be that would certainly be one of them Big Jones is at 5347 North Clark Street in Chicago. The Big Jones Cookbook will be published next May. Hey, a quick reminder that if you like these podcasts, there's one thing you can do to support them, and that's subscribe at iTunes. Also, tell people about them. Okay, that's two things. Three, you can share them on Facebook and on Twitter. 
that's four. And Pinterest and Instagram and Foursquare and LinkedIn. And I don't even know what half this stuff is. If any of those were dating sites, don't share it there. But spread the word. That would be nice. And try Smooth Delicious Fluffo, which is either a shortening or a social media site. Honestly, I have no idea these days. Michael Nagrin is the restaurant critic for Red Eye, the former and possibly final restaurant critic for the Sun-Times, and one of the reasons I came up with the name Skyful of Bacon, because I needed something to stand out in a town where all the food writers were named Mike. He cares seriously and passionately about food, and has tangled with more than a few people he thought were getting too cozy on the restaurant beat, including his Sun-Times predecessor, the late Pat Bruno. We met up to talk whether the restaurant scene is better or worse these days, whether food writing is more or less interesting these days, and everything else. How is Red Eye? How is reviewing for Red Eye? Um, you know, it's interesting because I, it, I think I'm w- more well-read than I was in the Sun-Times. You know, it's like the Sun-Times, you got like all these old readers who... You know, they've been doing this thing for, you know, they get the paper because they get the paper. They don't get the paper because they're going to read about food, right? And, uh, you know, maybe they stumble across my article or maybe they don't. Maybe they're more interested in politics or whatever. The thing about Red Eye, of course, is that it's so small that almost everybody who picks it up, even incidentally, reads it cover to cover, right? Because they have that 10-minute commute or whatever it is. And so people who didn't think they were going to read about food this morning end up reading about food even though just because I'm in there. Um, I think what's also interesting is what I've seen is like um, when I uh, look at my Twitter, like people who start to follow me after I write articles and stuff, is I'm sort of getting that like 20 to 30 year old like Lincoln Park young woman or, or like a dude who lives in Wrigleyville um, joining my Twitter feed now, which is not something I don't think I would have got at the Sun-Times. So that are, you know, that, that's been really cool. Um, also because, you know, I think that group, the millennials or whatever you want to call them, um, they like to eat. Um, you know, they're not uh, necessarily discriminating, right? Like they like when I go, like, like I did last week, to eat like chicken on a donut, right? Um, <laughs> but at the same time, they also want to know about like, you know, I, I think the really cool opportunity is I've got to write these two little things called the essentials and worth the trip. And essentials are like the old school Chicago places that have been around a long time. Um, and worth the trip is just like some dish that you absolutely need to try. And so I'm able to go beyond the like, oh, what's opening tomorrow kind of thing, which is not something you would have expected maybe at Red Eye. Um, and so, again, like it, some 25-year-old who's looking to go on a date um, all of a sudden comes across my North Pond uh, article and they're like, oh, I don't even know about this. But there's some like warming hut and some ice skating warming former ice skating warming hut in Lincoln Park and uh, you know oh it's really cool and there's this guy doing this great food I'm gonna go check it out maybe and so I feel good about that like I feel like I'm able to reach a different audience and that's been actually more rewarding than I thought it might have been um, I, you know the other thing too is that uh, for the last you know I guess I've been doing this like eight years um, I've had a really difficult time with editors in general right. Um, they just don't get my voice. They don't understand who I am. And um, that doesn't, that's not to say that uh, Red Eye does, lets me do exactly what I want to do. Um, but Lisa Arnett, who's my editor now, has been eminently really fair, um, more so than almost anybody else I've worked with. She doesn't try to be like, oh, do this because we think this. She doesn't even try to get me to write for, like I say, a 25 to 34 year old demographic, which ostensibly what Red Eye is, right? Um, 
you know, every once in a while there might be a nod or something on a word choice or something like that. Um, but it's it's actually a lot more freeing than a lot of the stuff I've been able to do. So, and you can make your rock and roll analogies and think that your audience might actually get them. Yeah, you know, um, I've definitely gone away from that a little bit. Um, you know, and and I've been thinking about like you know, like one of the things I you know when I was with New City, I used to like try all kinds of different things. You know, like I make allusions to songs and like I write something you know, an article about falafel or somehow tie it to Radiohead Kid A or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, it's hard to say whether those things are like gimmicks or they're things that propel the story along. And I still haven't sort of figured out yet. I mean, it's like one of those things you're always kind of learning as a writer and trying to get better at yeah. what you do. And so I think right now I'm sort of, I, when I start to get into that, I tend to genericize the references more because I'm curious about this idea of longevity and not that anybody's going to go back and read a red eye column from like 19 or 2014. But, um, you know, this idea that like, if you read Hemingway today or whatever, um, he does, he, he, he talks about a bullfighter, but he might not say the name because the name doesn't matter. or It's not going to register a hundred years from now. So I've been doing a little bit of that, but I'm also trying to think about like what's next, right? Like, what I haven't been doing is experimenting as much and it's like, what can I do to grow or like, how do we grow food? You know, even in a writing form, you know, obviously digital and all these other things we're trying to do, but, um, you know, I feel like I'm sort of itchy right now. Like I want to do something different. I don't know what that is yet. Um, you know, but that's something I'm thinking about right now. You know, you just have to try different things. That's what writing is. And sometimes, I mean, there's, there's a, an elaborate piece by me on LTH Forum about a certain long-gone Japanese restaurant that I thought was, like, the greatest thing I'd ever written, and now I cringe looking at it because it's so horribly overwritten. Yeah. Nevertheless, I, it was important to do that. You know, if I if I had never stretched and tried that, it wouldn't have been any good. You know, it did, it did me good to write that badly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I started, I thought I was really good. And, you know, I was okay. Uh, but there is something to that sort of Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, right? Like you do it and you do it and do it um, and you do get really good. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting that people always, you know, of course they're enchanted by the idea that we get to go out to eat dinner for free and, you know, people dote on us sometimes if they know who we are or whatever. And it's like, oh, you get, you get to work to eat or whatever. That's pretty cool. But the thing that people always also freak out about is, I don't know if I could actually do the writing part of it. You know, it's like I got to look at this blank piece of paper and they think about like when they were in college and they were writing a term paper and, you know, they had to do it in one night. And I think um, what's really interesting to me is that at some point along the way, that blank screen or that blank piece of paper just became a tool like a carpenter uses a drill or something like that, right? Like, I don't sweat it. I don't think about it. I've done it so many times. I have the faith that what, something will come out on the other end. Uh, I can just start writing, and even if it means that I have to rewrite to get where I'm going, um, you know, it's kind of freeing, right? It's like I'm no longer, you think you might be scared of the, I'm not going to have something to say or whatever. It's like I, I do feel like writer's block is a myth. I don't know that I've ever experienced it. I've experienced uh, not being able to come up with a good lead, Um and that takes some time sometimes, um, but that's really like the game. Really, is if I can come up with that, then I can always go. Yeah, I mean, then you just go to the grocery store, right? And you you run an errand, and then you come back and do it. Yeah, I used to do that thing where I just like cook, you know, yeah. or uh, I'd even just like clean up my office for like an hour or whatever to figure it out. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting that you mentioned writing about these older places because I I really like that that it is not you know the 
the new review of the week, you know, the new restaurant of the week every single week. Um, and in fact, I've gone to a couple places because you wrote about them. I had been to uh, Isla Pilipina years ago. There's a post on LTH Forum about eating chicken wings and seeing transsexuals there. But I had <laughs> never been back. And it's a, you know, it had been open four months when I went. And now it's, a, it's an old veteran place. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, it really is one of the best things I've had this year. And, you know, it was one of those places that was kind of on my list. Oh, been there, done that. Like, well, no, you haven't really. You should go back and check it out again. It's funny that you mentioned transsexuals because there's some... <laughs> when do I not? Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's a hot topic in the food world. Um, when I went to uh, Andy's Thai Kitchen uh, the first time, uh, we were like in the middle of the meal and this uh, woman walked in and she was, I mean, uh, beautiful, strikingly gorgeous, uh, you know. She had this brown bag, like she, like sort of like a homeless kind of like I thought there was like a forty in it or something like that, and uh, she gives it to the waiters, and then they all walk towards the back, and uh, they unwrap it, and it's like a sixty-four ounce uh, bottle of Tropicana, and they just start pouring orange juice for each other, and they start like talking, and the woman starts to talk, and she has a very deep voice, and then I notice she also has an Adam's apple, and I'm like, oh okay, and. Uh, so now I sort of have this thing, like, maybe the sign of a really good Asian restaurant is some some measure of transsexual traffic. I don't know. <laughs> I know that's, like, it's something that I probably haven't written about because I'm not sure I'd get away with it. But, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that with Isla. It's like truck drivers and diners on the interstate. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, Isla's really interesting. I mean, I've been going there for a really long time, and... Uh, you know, when I first started going, it was still very much, uh, you know, I think their father started it. Right. You know, over time, they've really evolved. You know, they brought, like, the the son is now this artist, and it's become more of a communal kind of experiential thing. It actually hues more towards um, what you might see at, like, Mott Street or something like that, but not, still more traditional in the food, but um, it feels more like a community, and I think that's, it's really interesting to see that sort of evolve over time. Well, let's talk about, yeah, Filipino food, because I feel like that's one of the things that's that's finally happened you know i've been trying to eat filipino food for forever and a lot of times yeah the st- the stuff on the steam table was just odd or you felt like you know the filipinos just didn't get nearly as nice spices as as the thais did or something like sure. that and i feel like we're kind of at this moment finally where those flavors people figure out how to focus the flavors and make them accessible and it's we're getting some high-end Filipino things. We have barbecue Filipino in uh, Smalls, and you just reviewed uh, Laughing Bird. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's like anything else, right? You have to. There's usually like a cultural influence that gives you permission as a young cook. Um, you know, like if you were a musician and you finally discovered the Ramones, and you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. You know. Um, it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be this classical composition or whatever. And uh, so, I, you know, I mean, I think everybody points back to it. And I don't know if it's him or not, but, you know, David Chang, right? Uh, okay, I'm going to make this an elevated cuisine. I'm going to take Asian food and I'm going to say it's like something that can be bigger than just the $7 dumpling or whatever. Um, and, and I think a, a, a lot of young Filipino cooks probably saw that and saw, oh, this guy can do this. Why can't I do this? You know, I've been working for Charlie Trotter or I've been working for, um, you know, some big French chef. And But this is really the food that I cook and this is my voice and people seem to be more open to it. Um, and, I, and I think that's kind of probably what's pushed it a little bit, you know. 
Um, it's hard to say, although I think a lot of these places, you know, it's like some place uh, like Smalls, right? It almost feels like it came fully formed from nowhere, right? He's actually doing something that is neither Filipino, neither barbecue, but some beautiful hybrid, right? Um, and that's kind of cool because that's like just sort of a big leap. It's not like, oh, we're just going to take a papaya salad and we're going to add beets to it, which I loved at Laughing Bird. I'm not sort of denigrating that, but you can see that evolution. This idea of like, oh, I'm just going to make awesome brisket. Oh, and then I'm going to cover it in a Filipino yeah. like a tiger sauce. It's That's pretty cool. <laughs> One thing I notice is when I see, like, Eater does the roundup of reviewers, as I used to at Grub Street, it's a short list. There's not a lot of places doing reviews now, and fewer reviews coming out of the places. I mean, I feel like things like Time Out don't review as many things as they used to, because they don't have as many people as they used to. Um, at the same time, one thing I notice, I mean, I write feature stories about places, and you write reviews about places... And people tweet back to you a lot more than they do to me if they get written about. I feel like there, at least among restaurant people, there's, you know, getting a review is still this, you know, this important moment, this ritual that you need, you know, that you take seriously. So I don't know where do you where do you feel reviewing exists in our universe now? It's tough. I mean, I think one just to allude to the idea that you just brought up. I mean, again, I think that's part of the red eye label, right? So. Um, I just think there's a greater awareness of that paper that I didn't expect when I first started with it. It's been really successful, and you know, I don't think it's a reflection of me. I don't even think it's a reflection of the fact that I'm writing a review as much as it's a reflection of the venue being so popular and forefront in people's minds. And not necessarily about food, right? But you know, it just happens to be that that's what I do for them. Um, it, you know, what I there was that Josh Ozersky. I don't know if you saw it yeah. recently about the power of reviewing and. You know, I had mixed feelings about that, like, you know, whether or not there's still power in the review or not. You know, it's hard to say, you know, I get feedback more from people, too, than I got in the past, even from the Sun-Times, which is interesting. Although the Sun-Times was interesting because that was the first time where I wrote a review about public and quality meats. And, you know, it was basically like, hey, the food is amazing as it always is, but also like many of the uh, uh, one-off hospitality restaurants... Uh, you know, service sometimes feels like it takes a back door. And even, you know, there's always been that complaint about Blackbird where the tables are too close together. And that was the same complaint I had at Public and Quality Meets. I thought they were too close together. And uh, after I wrote that piece, uh, Paul Kahn wrote me a nice handwritten letter and talked about how he really appreciated the review. And they had taken a table out at Public and Quality Meets from to make it less uh, constrictive. And he it also said that they went straight to table service instead of having you come in and order and sit down. And that was like the first time I'd written something where somebody actually really thoughtfully wrote me back and actually made adjustments based on what I said, which is why I do, why I do what I do. Like, I know people want to think that, like, we, you know, sit in our parents' basements and we're really angry and, you know, we just want to take people out and that kind of thing. But I really do believe in that old idea of writing a review as being a service to people. And, you know, that I want people to spend the dollars, the limited dollars they have at the right places for the people who are doing it right. And I want places to improve and... Uh, you know, that's the great thing about a guy like Paul, which is um, he doesn't 
he even though sometimes he'll he'll have his moments with reviewers and things like that he actually listens and he makes adjustments and that whole group makes adjustments and it's probably why they're as good as they are what they are so you know and that's only just a couple of years ago so it's interesting because i can see the influence in a way that i never saw it before um but at the same time i'm not under any inf- uh, uh impression that when i write something all of a sudden i'm gonna pack a place um on the other hand you know i recently wrote about bohemian house uh i don't know if you saw that review yeah uh, again, a place I, you know, I, I did. I, I sat down as I started to look at it before I went there, and I was like, I've never heard of this guy. Oh, wait, he worked in a steakhouse in Schaumburg for five years. You know, and I, I said to my wife, I was like, hey, um, this is really going to be... Because I always, like, I also feel it's weird because ostensibly I'm supposed to go into a place, you know, completely uh, tabula rasa and be like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be or whatever, but today that's really impossible. And... um I said to my wife, I was like, you know what? This is either going to be the worst meal we had or it's going to be brilliant. I don't know which one it's going to be, but everything pointed to not so good. You know, he worked in a steakhouse It's in, you know, that area where like, you know, drunken tourists from Howl at the Moon are, uh, you know, fighting with uh, bottle service vodka people. And you're just like, this is not the place for a restaurant. And, uh, you know, I found this beautiful thing and this great chef who really has a lot of craft um, doing something with, again, you know, like Filipino food or whatever, Czech food, right? right. We've lost some great restaurants like Operetta, and um, we really don't have that. And this is like a new neo-modern take on it. And I, I really loved it, and I thought it was very good. And, um, you know, what I've heard from him is I think that they've gotten some bump in business. And, again, I don't think I'm filling, you know, the coffers, but um, it is interesting to see that there is still some level of uh, uh, influence that exists, you know, that I didn't necessarily expect you know, because I think there's something to what Ozerski's saying about the dilution and, you know, not only having pockets of power and things like that now. Yeah, you know, it's it's a hard thing because I don't, yeah, I don't can think of myself as having influence in any meaningful sense. And yet there's this thing where places get buzzed. And if it isn't from people like you and me talking about them on Twitter, I don't know, where is it coming from? The other, on the flip side, the other day, like Omar Okantu and I, had this like exchange on Twitter and he said something we were talking about, uh, I don't know, Charlie Trotter or somebody or whatever. And then he said, Oh, we were talking about, uh, Stephanie Isard's new backyard grill. Uh, her husband had showed, tweeted a picture of it or whatever. And then, you know, Omar is not one to ever, uh, miss an opportunity at promotion. And he was like, Hey, I have this great idea that will revolutionize everything for writers. Let's get together. And I was like, okay. And then, but you know, I sort of also tweeted some self deprecating thing, which was, well, you don't really need me. Chefs are the new content creators. Um, and there's some tongue-in-cheek in that, but there's also some truth to that, right? Like, the people who uh, are really good at working social media have somehow been able to circumvent the system in a really effective way as well. I mean, I think about, you know, and it's funny, ironically, because I've not yet been there or even was there when he was underground, but uh, Jake Bickelhop and, uh-huh. like, 42 Grams, like, he basically built this thing by himself from the middle of nowhere. And, I mean, he definitely use traditional media i know he was very aggressive at asking people to come out and try his stuff and you know that's very admirable and you know but he he sort of almost came up fully formed um by his own invention you know and that's something that's maybe a little bit different than we saw uh you know five or ten years ago yeah well honey butter fried chicken i would say is another one like that that you know and anthony made this point on my podcast one time that you know they never you know they, they use no pr no no typical publicity, but they have a ma- you know a huge mailing list, 
And when you you have 40 seats to fill, 10,000 people is a really big number, you know, getting your information. So, yeah, you know, I haven't met Jake, but I do know Josh and Christine very well. And, you know, the thing I would say about them and the thing I would say, you know, if I could say anything to other chefs, young chefs, even chefs who've been around it, I think one of the reasons I got into what we do is that while chefs were artists or craftspeople and they did this beautiful thing that I was really interested in, um, unlike, say, rock stars or pro athletes, they were still very accessible. Um, and they wanted to talk about their craft and they were open and honest and they didn't hide behind PR or hide behind a message or whatever. Some did, of course, but um, you know Charlie Trotter being the one great example was some, and part of the reason I'd always sort of been really critical of him because after I'd heard about how he improvises like Miles Davis for the 10,000th time, I just kind of got, okay, I'm not really interested <laughs> anymore. Um, but that's the thing about Josh and Christine is that they were just really good people who really loved to cook, who believed in the craft, you know, believed in those things that we sort of think are hokey and weird now, like, oh, local and sustainable and farmers. Um, and that goes such a long way, that just genuineness and that sort of, you know, they weren't about getting famous. They were about trying to earn a living doing the thing that they were really passionate about. And I think that's the thing is, is a, as a young chef or a chef who's trying to evolve, I think that's the thing you still need to do. And I think if you do that, um, I really believe things will follow from that. You know, success will follow from that. Yeah, they they spent eight or nine years becoming an overnight success. Earlier this year, I was I kind of felt like we were just in one of the sort of fallow periods. You know, we had we had a lot of steakhouses coming. RPM Steak had its big party last night. I saw Odarsha's tweets about that. I was not invited. Uh, <laughs> I don't get invited to anything. So. Yeah. You, you at least got the Dove's luncheon, luncheonette tape. I That's did not, right. Yeah. I don't rate on the, the, I the, may be the only, one-off hospitality. The only <laughs> one who got it who uh, actually had a working cassette player. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, there are a lot of steakhouses coming. Uh, I'm sure that Formentos, the the Bristol Bolena old school Italian thing, will be good. Uh, nevertheless, I find it a little hard to get super excited about old school d- Italian. You also have a canto coming from uh, Lawless in the uh, Gage Group. It's going in the honoree space. There you go. Week. There's there's more Italian. So um, what's an Irishman doing Italian for? I, you know, <laughs> I don't, you know, the the best meal I had in Dublin was Spanish, but uh, you know, so I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of how Ireland works. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, it seemed like we were kind of we were kind of in a a period of pulling back a little steaks and Italian places and stuff like that. And then I've just had so many good experiences from people who kind of opened places that were just what they loved and wanted to do, and seemed to be doing pretty well at it. I mean, Tet Charcuterie was busy last night. Parachute seems to be building an audience. Uh, Forty Two Grams you mentioned. I mean, MFK is another one that just opened up and. You know, a little a kind of neighborhood place in the nice old sense that seems to be doing well. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Is, is the scene good or bad? What's the world in favor or opposed? You know, it's. I think I'm with you, which is to say that, like, there definitely feels like we've reached a maturity in our development as a dining scene where 
Um, we have so many places opening and so many of them seem like the same thing. Um, but, and so sometimes those like really interesting things get lost. Um, but it's also a part of, you know, dividing your attention, you know, it's like, how do you go to 20 different places in a week or whatever? Um, I think really what's happened is we truly have become a world-class food city and it's so hard to figure out what's going on because there's so much going on. Um, you know, I I would agree with you. I, I mean, I love tech charcuterie. Um, you know, it's a pretty bold move to be like, oh, I'm just going to do all that. You know, as much as we like to think that we're advanced and as a food culture and we know all these things now, it's like people aren't still going out clamoring to eat head cheese. Right. It's just right. it's 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 not happening. Um, you know, people like foie gras and they like, uh, you know, maybe they've branched out a little bit to like some country pate or something like that. But um, that's still a pretty bold move for those guys. And uh, they're unabashed about it. And. Um, you know, I, I think I think the thing, again, that's really interesting about it is, and, and again, MFK, I think uh, he serves a cobia collar uh, and clams dish. Uh, you know, again, uh, outside of the izakaya scene, you're not seeing a lot of fish collar, even though it's a really beautiful cut. It's the kind of thing that scares people off even today. Um, uh, what, what I think it, you see in those places and what I think we're seeing more of, uh, because people are now feeling like they can take more risk, is that they're hewing to their own voice. Um, and that's the thing. That's the thing that I look for more than anything. It's like, it's fine if you want to open up the 40th Italian restaurant or the 50th steakhouse or whatever. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't open up an Italian joint or a steakhouse is completely and fundamentally different than anything that exists out there if you kind of follow your heart and do it in a way that you want. I mean, fat rice in theory could just be like another Pan-Asian restaurant that yeah, yeah. you know serves noodles and dumplings or whatever. Um, but instead, it's Macanese, which nobody really knows what that is. Um, you know, it's like a language that mechanics speak at, at your auto detail shop. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, they have the fact that they've just sort of said, we're just going to go for this thing and we're going to go for this thing whole hog in a way that honors what we believe we want to do. Uh, I think that's re- what's really exciting. And I think, if anything, because we're, su- we're such a world-class city, we have destination diners. Um, and I think what's really critical is our rental. Uh, the rental rates are still fairly low relative yeah. to a city like New York. Um, that people can take chances, and, and, and so that's what we're seeing. Yeah, well, you know, and, and you can open a, a thing that people have opened before, and it can still be good and novel. I mean, the one that I, I went to just because one of my sons was in uh, summer camp down in Hyde Park, so I thought, well, here's my chance to go to A10 mm-hmm. finally. I would probably not have made that schlep otherwise, and I loved it. And I just thought, you know, really, this is... this is. You're not the, allowed to like the carbonara, though? Because Kenny Z says, "Oh you yeah, can. you know." <laughs> Liam had it and compared it favorably to mine, uh, but grilled them carefully to make sure I didn't put too much, or they didn't put too much pepper in it, like I do for his taste. Nice. But uh, you know, I mean, I just thought it's—it really was that sort of you know, Charlie, Charlie Trotter meets Italian, everything beautifully prepared, and you know, I was just blown away by how good it was. Um, I don't know what other restaurants make you happy what what else has excited you yeah i mean you know i alluded to it earlier bohemian house i think was a big surprise for me um you know he's uh you know you usually you go to these places like not even check but german like lashets or reese's or whatever and you get these you know it's comfort food it's great i get these big sausages and i get these really like heavy dumplings 
Um, I think what's interesting with uh, Bohemian House is he's sort of taken like a real French laundry sensibility to Czech food. And so the spetzel is this really beautiful light sour cream and uh, egg and flour dough that, you know, each, the spetzel is just really, really light. Um, and they pour like fondue table side, um, you know, and again, it's not strictly Czech. I mean, so there's a paprikash on the uh, and it's this beautiful, smoky, juicy to the bone chicken uh, that has a really hot smoked paprika on it. And it's it's just one of the more beautiful, you know, you could just call it a roast chicken if you want or a smoked and roast chicken. Um, and, and it was just, uh, you know, it's something I didn't expect. And, and, and uh, you know, it's nice that it's not another Italian joint or it's not another, you know, seafood joint or whatever the thing du jour is today. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've been really excited. I mean... Uh, well, on that note, I mean, the Rattler. Do you like the Rattler? Uh, I have not been. Oh, okay. I'm sad. So, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Nathan and, uh, you know, of course, back to V and, uh, um, you know, but I just haven't had a chance to get that. I mean, that's the problem today, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. None of us can fully dedicate ourselves to this task of evaluating food the way that people once could. Um, and so I have to split my life between a bunch of different things. And um, I feel guilty about it, like, because ostensibly I'm supposed to be an expert and an expert is supposed to be deep. Um, and I'm not as deep as I once was. I mean, I'll just be honest about it. And that bothers me and that nags at me a little bit. And the idea that I haven't yet gotten to a place like that is sort of embarrassing. But um, I'm sure he's doing really good stuff based on what I've seen. In and the past. similar, I think, to what you liked about uh, Bohemian House. I mean, we talked about MFK as well. Um, also something that, uh, you know, it's just this, uh, it's weird. It's almost like you dropped a Barcelona uh, seaside restaurant in Lakeview uh, right next to Duffy's. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and you're just sort of, again, like, this is the weirdest place for this restaurant. Um, but it's kind of cool because it's subterranean. You have to walk down right. a flight of stairs and uh, it's very whitewashed walls and um, you know, again, it feels like the kind of place Hemingway might have hung out at in Spain when he was doing his thing. And um, you, f- it's like the kind of place where, like, if you still, if you worked as you did in an advertising agency back in the day, and you were going to take a three martini lunch or whatever, <laughs> like this is a beautiful place to go do it. No one's going to find you, um, and you can get you know drunk out of your mind and enjoy just pristine, beautiful seafood. Um, you know, or in the case, I thought one of the things that was really interesting, which I guess he did at the drawing room, but I didn't know, um, tempura fried avocado, because why not? You know, which fa- I just had last night at Tet, so apparently that's a trend. Okay, so yeah, you know, and he, it was a great story. He said uh, when he was at the drawing room, he got in a box of avocados that he thought were ripe. Turns out they were rock hard. He's like, what am I going to do with these? He's like, well, if I fry them, they'll be fine. And, you know, so he sliced them really thin and he tempura fried them and, Toss them with some chili oil and some uh, acid and, uh, you know, some cilantro and stuff. And it was it was beautiful. It's, just, you know, it's a beautiful thing, something I didn't expect. Um, you know, and again, it's interesting because the owners, the Worshams, uh, you know, they come from the uh, Charlie Trotter and the Art Smith world. So, again, uh, I think what's, I guess if we start talking about these trends or whatever, you know, we talk about A10 and we, you go back to Matthias Murgis. Um, you have this sort of almost rejection of the Charlie Trotter world and favor. I mean, although it's not, I think what's interesting about what is similar and maybe what has created these great restaurants is that Charlie probably taught these guys uh, very much the auteur theory of restauranting, you know, and this is your place. Your name's on the board literally or figuratively. 
you control everything, you do everything. And I think maybe what's interesting about that is that if you're the Worshams, every single detail has been attended to in the way that you want it to be. You don't have an investor in the way. I mean, I'm sure they have investors, but silent. Right. Um, and, and same with Matthias. Like, I mean, A10, you show uh, Billy Sunday. They're these beautiful things that are very unique. They're an expression of him and his wife, uh, Rachel. And uh, I guess there's something to be said about controlling everything or being the auteur and being able to see every little detail. And maybe that's why those places are successful in a way where it's not like they're trying to do something that they saw or some trend or whatever, you know? We have certain restaurant groups that are, you know, they, they open in in every genre they can think of. We just suddenly had the ramen places open up on the heels of the barbecue places, you know, and the wood-burning pizza places and, and every other thing like that. Do restaurant groups behave like that in other cities? I mean, do, do the people who own, you know, like the guy who owns Balthazar, does he have a ramen place <laughs> and a barbecue place? I, I don't necessarily think that they do, although obviously Danny Meyer has a barbecue place and things like that. But it, I think maybe it's the legacy of lettuce here. You know, if we're, if we're talking dueling legacies from the 80s, it's Trotter versus Lettuce that you need to have one of everything and it's okay to have such divergent choices of what you have. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing uh, you, we have to be careful about as experts or critics or whatever is um, not uh, discounting what the regular eater wants or tastes or or yearns for right and it can it can be easy to get far away from that because you know you've eaten at a hundred italian places or whatever and you start to forget about that and i think it's important for us to stay close to that if we can and i think the thing that you know i i'm i i have not been impressed with um almost anything that has come from the melmans the youngers um i just i I, I mean, I, I think they make their father look like a genius that he was back in the day um, because and it shows how hard it really is to pull that kind of thing off. I think the real Melman Jr. is Brendan Sotokoff at this point. I think he's taken the next he's sort of Andy Garcia and Godfather three. <laughs> exactly. And, and there's Sophia. Coppola. Uh, he um, you know, there's something interesting about like he's able to, uh, you know, I. The the lettuce and artini places back in the day felt a little Vegasy. They felt a little constructed, but they're it always bugged me that you saw the same type, the same the same sign painters, you know, typeface at like Ed DeBevix and Shaw's. Right. I felt you shouldn't have been able to see Ed DeBevix from Shaw's quite so much. Right. You know? Like why well, it was like Maggiano's and uh uh the bistro, um, Monamiga B. B. Yeah, like the 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 handwritten signs are the same, and you're yeah. like, well, which one is it? Is it French or is it Italian? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and and uh, Sotokov somehow is able to pull off uh, authenticity or more authentic, uh, a, a more authentic feeling. It doesn't feel as much like a set piece. Um, as much as it sort of feels like, you know, like I went to Green Street uh, uh, Meats recently and I was just, I mean, when I walked in the door, I was just sort of blown away. It really felt like this warehouse that had been there for like a hundred years that had been beaten to hell 
you know, okay, I put some string lights in and I put up a few signs. Um, but otherwise, like, you might have just, like, stumbled into this if you were homeless and slept here. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it's not, it, you know, like, I'm, I, I know it's probably a lot of it is faux finish and things like that. Um, but I also sort of wonder, like, if I was the health inspector for the city and I came into this place, how I actually passed this place. Because yeah. I'm like... Really? Is this clean? Is this you know? And I don't mean With that some in a disparaging really way. Big flashlights in both hands to be able to see things. Yeah, and, exactly. And so you know what? I understand. Like if you're 25 and you know you just got off work and you're meeting some woman that you met on Tinder or whatever, <laughs> and like you're like, dude, I heard about this hot place, and you go there. Like I get it. I understand how you feel. Like this is cool, and you're discovering something, and you feel like you found your own sort of secret clubhouse, and you know it. It, it Without might, having to join Soho House, exactly, yeah. and 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 so um, while you know, in 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 all honesty, like uh, I love the smoked chicken leg. I thought the smoked chicken leg was one of the best things I've had anywhere this year. That being said, the barbecue across the board was not like the best barbecue in the city. Um, I thought the brisket was pretty good. Same here. The, I thought the sides were a little forgettable. I thought they could have used a little Though more. I kind of like the Frito, the brisket. Chili yeah, Frito pie thing. Yeah, I mean, how, how can you ask? Yeah, and um, I and I hadn't even gotten drunk before um, I had it. But uh, you know, there 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 is a restaurant experience is more than it is more than the food, uh, and even maybe not for us, but but for everybody else. And and so you know, when you look at those things, you, you sort of see the be- you can find the beauty in them and understand yeah. why people like them. But some people just don't do it. again. If you're using the same you know, uh, font and, and, and it's a French font and it's being put in the barbecue joint. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I think what Sotokov does is pay attention to those details and that's the fun. Well, and it felt like for a while, all his places looked the same. You know, he, he gave you the guilt bar with a cheeseburger and the guilt bar with a deli in it and stuff like that. Yeah. There and, was a French Bella poke thing or yeah. whatever. And green street that I agree with you about the decor. I mean, it blew me away how completely conceived it sort of reminded me of Disneyland and that, is usually meant to be an insult, but I don't mean it that way. In that it's so total, you know, you, like if you go to the haunted mansion, you're you're inside the full environment, and you're thinking, I know it's still light outside, in, and it's Florida out there, but boy, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. And Green Street was the same way. I mean, I felt like I was on the, the set of True Blood or something. <laughs> but uh, that is my favorite ride at Disneyland or Disney World, <laughs> the haunted mansion. <laughs> Thanks for listening once again. Thanks to Ethan Foreman of H. Foreman and Son for coming by the house to feed me some really great fish, and David Hammond for eating it with me. Thanks to Paul Farabach for talking Southern food, and Michael Nagrant for talking our food scene. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode, if you listen to this one and tell friends about it on Fluffo. It's a social media platform and something to fry chicken in. Thank you.